This is the Power of Genetics podcast. In each episode, I'll be interviewing successful practitioners and impactful thought leaders in the world of health and performance. They will share their journey, their insights, and their best advice for us all. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe. Let's begin with today's episode. Good morning from the Power of Genetics podcast. Our guest today, believe it or not, is Dr. David Katz. A very, very big and warm welcome to you, Dr. Katz. Thank you, Yael. So good to be with you. So I um, always have a, a few minutes to chat today before we actually start recording. And I always do a little bit of homework before, and I was, <laughs> I should have, I should have given myself a whole lot of more time. I was reading this extraordinary, extraordinary bio about David. And, you know, I get to talk to, to many accomplished and inspiring leaders in the, in the world of healthcare, but you really caught me by surprise, kind of the stuff that I knew about you. And then, you know, all the things I didn't know about you. So I'm going to start off with one quote, which I absolutely loved. And then, David, I'm going to ask you to, I always say, like, you know, can you tell us kind of who you are, like your degrees you've got, and that kind of like, oh, I love that there's a dog behind you. I just saw something move. That was wonderful. Um, it's a bit, oh, lovely. It looks like a doodle of some kind. Um, yes, yeah, golden doodle. It's a golden doodle. My golden's outside. I gave it, I always give my dogs a bone before I go into a podcast so that um, I can try to distract them for an hour. So I always say, you know, like, tell us who you are now and then once we know who you are now let's go back to the beginning and find out how you started and why you started on this extraordinary journey and then we will plot our way um to where you are now and, and the work you're doing now um but i am going to share this quite extraordinary i don't know who said it but they called you the pot laureate of health promotion like, I mean, does it get better than that? That was pretty good. Uh, that was Ron Getzel, actually, a colleague and a specialist in worksite health promotion in particular. And I think he made that declaration at one of the annual Art and Science of Health Promotion conferences where I gave a keynote address. And I, I really was quite honored at stuff. So I, I grabbed that and ran with it. Anyway, thank you, Yael. Uh, really a pleasure to be with you and I appreciate the kind words of introduction. Uh, my wife would say I am a dog whisperer. Um, I like to think I'm something of a horse whisperer, although the art of horse, horse whispering is, is listening. The horses are the ones whispering all the time. So, so Barley is one of three dogs we have. Uh, we have two others who are off elsewhere, uh, one of which is, is, a, is a puppy only about 13 weeks old. So we have our hands full at the moment. Yeah. And then I have two horses. So we, we can get it back into my recreational activities. But the, uh, the, the short list of my best friends on the planet is, is heavily inclined toward quadrupeds. <laughs> We're a little the same in this house. I totally understand. <laughs> I spend a lot of time with those guys. And then, you know, it, it's interesting. In, in the little bit of time we had before we, we started recording, there's always good conversation then. And, and you mentioned, you know, Power of Genetics podcast, but not a lot of conversation about genetics. But, but in some ways, we can't avoid it because when I talk about the arc of my career, it, it really has been very much focused on the latent power of persuasion and, and the art of communication. And when, when Ron said, hey, he's the poet laureate of health promotion, it, it's because, A, 
you know, I was an ardent champion of key messages in the potential of health promotion for many, many years, long before it had the cachet in pop culture it has now. And B, I routinely included poetry in my public speeches, some of it mine, some of it others. Uh, I, I forget the one that, that prompted Ron on that particular occasion, but, but one of my common entries is the parable of the blind men and the elephant by John Godfrey Sachs. It was six men of Indistan to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant though all of them were blind that each by observation might satisfy his mind. Anyway, it, it, it's a precautionary tale about reductionism and, and I go through the whole thing routinely. So I may have done it on that occasion, but power of genetics because my father is a cardiologist, very analytical thinker, very left brain. My mother is a well-published poet, totally right brain. Oh, wow. And I dealt, my, you know, my, my personal experience and my professional experience is very much a constant wrestling match of the two of those things clamoring for supremacy inside my own head. I, and I would say, ultimately, I concluded, I, I majored in French as an undergraduate with a focus on medieval literature. Uh, so I, and I had those artsy impulses, but I did that in part because I'd already decided I'm going to med school. So I can study whatever I, you know, I need to complete my pre-med requirements. And then, you know, I'm going to do science for the rest of my life. Let me do something else. So as an undergrad at Dartmouth, I studied, again, majored in French and focused on medieval literature. And I studied, you know, humanities, Eastern religion, logic, philosophy. I mean, it was, it was great. I, I never felt more educated in my life and then went on to med school. But anyway, uh, so power of genetics, uh, you know, analytical, medical thinking, one half of my genetic endowment, artsy, poetry, the other half. And I, and I, I really did feel compelled to fuse the two and, and leverage the power of artistic expression, the power of language in the pursuit of scientific biomedical aspirations. And one of the greatest inspirations in my career is Richard Dawkins. Yes. Dawkins is a famous evolutionary biologist. And what many people, including his fans, may or may not know about him is that for many years until he retired from it, he held the Charles Simonyi Endowed Chair at Oxford for, and this is the name of his chair, the explanation of science to the public. I, what a wow. magnificent I role. And, you know, and, and rightly so, because if you've read Dawkins' books, any of them from The Selfish Gene or, or any that followed, absolute master communicator. And what he relies on overwhelmingly is metaphor. And because, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words and a metaphor is a picture made with words. So every word you use making a metaphor is worth a thousand where you can say a lot by saying a little. And it, it, it's obviously, it's the great genius of the poet, but I think it's a great latent power at our disposal in science too. And so, you know, Dawkins helps clarify some of the most intricate truths of evolutionary biology using language that everybody can not just understand, but practically see. And I, I felt the same compulsion. I, I, I don't claim to be in his league, but that was part of the motivation that, that I could point to this to help people understand that. I, I could paint a word picture. One of the earliest ones that I relied on, and, and I actually have a slide where my wife and I put this image together, is a polar bear in the Sahara. And I originally used it uh, in conversation directly with my patients, explaining their struggle with weight. And that was obviously, that's been a, a salient concern for adults in the United States and increasingly around the world for a very long time. 
and, and unlike many of the other medical issues people wrestle with, this is the one that has direct impact on their psyche, their self-esteem. I mean, it's just, it's a hot button issue, always has been. And one of the unfortunate consequences of it is people blame themselves for their failure. So they try to lose weight and maybe they do, but then they gain it back or maybe they don't, but either way, they beat up on themselves. And so I, I started looking for a way to take people outside that turmoil within the bounds of their own skin and help them understand it differently. And I said, you know, let's talk about polar bears in the Sahara. They would do badly, right? And would it be the fault of the bears? And, you know, we could readily agree, marvels of survival adapted to one of the Earth's harshest climates, but only to that climate. And everything that makes them masters of survival in the cold would conspire against them in the heat. And alas, with climate change, all of that is actually happening, which was not the point of that slide, but uh, it, it was a, a portent of things to come. A anyway, to your question. Um, so I, I was motivated by... I'm going to interrupt. I know I said I wasn't going to interrupt, but I am going to interrupt. And the reason sure. I, I'm, I'm kind it's of smiling. It's your show. You, you can interrupt whenever you want. Kind of is my show, but really it's supposed to be about you. But I just, I, I, I'm going to forget to tell this. So I'm, I'm smiling at you a lot and nodding my head like so crazy is because I could be listening to myself in many ways. I just wanted to, I don't, so, so you don't know me very well. I studied architecture. Um, I was in, did, only did art at school, never did science, never did physics, chemistry, art, 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 all the way through, did architecture. Um, and then um, later in life, kind of for many reasons, another story, went back, did science, did nutrition, and ultimately genetics. So, um, and I had an outstanding call with Monique Klasa, you know, recorded a podcast with Monique. And we started out having this incredible conversation about all the courses she took in poetry, in literature. I mean, just almost like, and I, and we had this conversation saying, every time I talk to someone who, who has changed the paradigm of how we do health, there was another pathway of 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 mm. learning and studying that they brought to healthcare and and i i have yet to be proved wrong so i just wanted to i just wanted to note that and the other thing of course is genetics is evolutionary biology and i often right. talk about that i'm like if you want to understand genetics we just need to understand evolutionary biology. and the other thing i always talk about so i will keep quiet after this is you know when we talk <laughs> about obesity and my phd was in obesity and i feel so strongly about it it's very, it's a personal story for me. It's a, I just, you know, and it's all about the polar bear in the desert is, and that's evolution biology. You know, this, I, right. my first right. degree was a dietitian, hated it from day one, hated it because it was this idea that, you know, we all, we all should respond to our environment exactly the same way and respond to every calorie and every, so anyway, that's my story in like a little, but I just needed to know that like, I love what you're telling me because I'm a huge fan <laughs> when you bring art and literature and social science into the world of, of, of biological science, that's where the magic happens. Okay. It's, it's Very fun. cool. So we, we, we definitely have a theme and we're kindred yeah. spirits and actually it goes a bit further. Uh, so one of the things that I did over the years was teach Yale medical students clinical epidemiology along with preventive medicine, public health, and so forth. And clinical epidemiology is essentially the statistical underpinnings of robust clinical decision-making. So, you know, we certainly think about population health in terms of statistics, prevalence, and insulins, and rates, and risk. It's, it's fairly routine. 
but can you capture the power of all that in biostatistical analysis to fortify clinical decisions? And the answer is yes. So I, I'll give you a trivial example that, that anybody could understand. Somebody has fever and a headache and it might be meningitis. Do you do a spinal tap? Well, every clinician who's ever worked in the emergency room has to be able to answer that question. On the other hand, everybody with a cold may have a low-level fever and a headache. If you do spinal taps in everybody with a cold, uh, the system's going to lose patients with you pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, a lot of very unhappy customers. On the other hand, if we ever fail to do a spinal tap or more formally a lumbar puncture in someone who has meningitis, which is the thing you're worried about, well, that person's probably going to die, and that's not a good look either. So how do you get it right? Well, clearly there has to be some statistical threshold based on clinical information that says the risk of meningitis in this instance is high enough that it does warrant the lumbar puncture and the risk of meningitis is too low in this situation where it's more likely to be a cold you want to know what are the sources of information to inform that decision but also how is the brain processing that statistical threshold without actually declaring it to you. Because you know, I, I ran a residency, I was residency director at one point, and I would push on the medical residents. In the morning, they, you know, they'd present the cases they admitted the night before and they did or didn't do a particular test or procedure. I'd push on them and so how confident were you about blank? And nobody is willing to give a formally quantitative answer to that. But in fact, there, there is an underlying science of quantitation and the native heuristics of our brain work that way. So that it, our brain is, is a few steps ahead of us, actually. It is quantifying that threshold. It is, it is telling you yes or no, but yes or no based on some number of inputs. And the more you can be aware of all that and harness the power of it, the better your clinical decision making. And the, the impoverishment of a lot of clinical decision-making can be a topic for another day, but suffice to say, I've done a lot of ranting over the years about the fact that the standard of care is substandard because whatever people do on average becomes the standard of care. And if average is bad, the standard of care is bad. And from my point of view, the standard of care is bad. But all of that was a lead in to Aristotle. In, in his poetics, Aristotle noted that an eye for resemblances is the genius of the poet. That's, that's the use of metaphor. And again, it's this idea that essentially you're, you're looking at one thing and seeing another, and you are enhancing the view of the thing right in front of you by noting what it's like. And I would argue, and I in fact did in one of the textbooks I wrote on clinical epidemiology, that it is the genius of the most capable clinician as well, because when you're caring for an individual, you're predicting the future. If I treat with X, Y will happen, but you don't know the future for that individual. All you know is in the past, what has happened when patients just like you were treated with X? Well, just like you is an eye for resemblances. Essentially, clinical care is a metaphor every day. You or simile, you are like these other patients. This other patient's experience with this condition is you. And therefore, I can predict with some degree of confidence if I treat with X, Y will happen. Anyway, I think there are many, many neglected ways in which art informs and enhances science, both our ability to express it, um, to inspire people with it. Uh, one of Dawkins' brilliant books was Unweaving the Rainbow, which is a, a quote from Lord one. Byron. Yeah, yeah. By, so Byron, a romantic poet, thought you know, science does terrible things. It, it takes the beauty of a rainbow and explains it in terms of physics. And essentially they are unweaving the rainbow. 
And Dawkins said, oh, no, 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 back at you. What we're doing, when you understand the optics and the physics of a rainbow, it's not less wondrous. It's It's more wondrous. It's more wondrous. It's still just as beautiful to look at. And oh, by the way, what makes it happen in the first place will blow your mind. And I'm on Dawkins' side there. So anyway, all that. concept of awe, discovering, (laughs) I I don't know what I was listening to, but something about discovering awe. Okay, but I can see that we could land up talking for hours and no one... (laughs) And, and no one will know anything about who you are. So let's, okay, I'm going okay, okay. to pull it back, right? Clearly everyone. Yeah. Let's, I can see I'm going to have to guide this a bit more. We're going to have to keep you <laughs> like in a straight line. So, so for everyone listening, you must have gathered that David is an MD and also with the master's in public health. And I think the public health comes through very clearly um, I do feel, I, I do, I did read that you've like written 19 books. I feel like book number 20 is probably bringing art into the world of science that you need to write that book. So you can put that on your, your list. Um, but let's talk about my first encounter with, with you and, and, and your work and your reputation. So I don't know what happened before then, but we've got so much to get through. I'm going to go by my, my encounter. And that was the, you know, the, this, I, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which was, you know, I started out very much in the world of functional medicine. That was kind of the only world I knew and a little bit of integrative. And then suddenly I discovered this world of lifestyle medicine. Can you tell it, tell us what was the journey there? What was happening for you? You, you have been the main driver of, of this and it's global. I mean, it's absolutely global. It's got its own world's own place. Can you, can you give us a little insight about how this came about and the why? Yes, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to turn over to my left right now and, and stop wandering all over the place. So as you say, yeah, that I, I, I'm a physician. I trained in internal medicine and then preventive medicine, public health. I did sequential residencies. And, and I mentioned I was a residency director. That was of a combined program I helped develop. I, I was the architect uh, combining internal medicine and preventive medicine. So you could train both of those in a four-year span. I did sequential residencies over five years. And part of the answer to your question about lifestyle medicine actually came right then. So I completed my training in preventive medicine, public health at Yale in 1993, probably in June. That's, I think, the time of year the residencies wrap up. And within just a couple months of my graduation, a paper came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association that altered the trajectory of my whole career. The paper was entitled Actual Causes of Death in the United States. And I still consider it arguably the most important publication in the biomedical literature in the modern era. What what the two authors, Mike McGinnis and Bill Fagey, pointed out is that what gets listed on death certificates routinely, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, et cetera, as the cause of death is in fact not a cause, it's an effect. So yes, it's the it's the proximal cause of death, but something caused it. Something caused the heart disease. Come, something caused the diabetes, the cancer, the stroke, and and so forth. So they did an extensive analysis looking at that, the root causes, the underlying causes. They enumerated a list of ten factors that collectively explained almost all of the premature deaths that occur every year in the United States, and by extension, the modern world, because our epidemiology is much the same. But what captured, and by the way, everything on this list of 10 factors was modifiable with knowledge we already had back in 1993. So this is 30 years ago. We already knew how to fix all this stuff. 
Now, some of the items on the list required actions by the body politic, like exposure to toxins in the environment. What captured my imagination is a newly minted preventive medicine specialist whose job was to keep people well and prevent debilitating diseases, was that 80% of the premature deaths were clustered in just the first three entries. And they were tobacco use, poor diet, and lack of physical activity, or as I've referred to them ever since for the past 30 years, bad use of feet, forks, and fingers. So feet, forks, and fingers, 80% of the premature deaths, 80% of the chronic disease burden, and that's lifestyle. Now, even causes have causes, and of course, people don't necessarily choose their lifestyle behaviors in a vacuum. They're influenced by their social context, they're influenced by their environment. The choices any of us make are subordinate to the choices all of us have, and the choices we have are not necessarily under our control. So once again, there's a role for the body politic, but assuming you are enabled and empowered and there are resources at your disposal, we can call these lifestyle behaviors choices. And there is the choice of reducing your personal risk of all major chronic disease and premature death by 80% if you get feet, forks, and fingers right. So I said, that's it. That's my career. I can't justify I me. Mean, I went into medicine to, to take care of patients. And then I went into research to boldly go where no one had gone before and you know, ask the next erudite question and, and follow where it led. And that's what I thought I was going to do. And then this paper came out. And I said, I can't justify it. We already have the knowledge to eliminate 80% of chronic disease and premature death. I mean, the, the, the amount of human misery we could make go away if we turned what we already know into what we routinely do is mind boggling. So I have to do that. I have to devote my career to translate the translation of knowledge into the power of routine action. And everything I've ever done since is about that. And ultimately, the, the field of lifestyle medicine came into being. It didn't exist when I went through my training. Right. If it had existed, I, I, I might have trained in lifestyle medicine as opposed to preventive medicine, because that was really what I was focused on, preferentially nutrition. Uh, but it came into existence. And then it was actually a, a friend of mine, uh, Wayne Dysinger, fellow physician, preventive medicine doc, who was among the founders of the College of Lifestyle Medicine in America, who asked me if I'd be willing to run for president at a, at a critical time in, in the history of the enterprise. The college was very small, struggling. It was fairly insular. Um, all of the founders came from the same ideologic framework. So that they, they, you know, it, was, it had lots of potential, but it was a pretty small tent and an exclusive club. And the feeling was that, that you know, my, my academic work, my exposure could potentially change that. And the rest, as they say, is history. I was president for a couple of years, uh, invited some uh, luminary colleagues to speak, did broaden the topics, emphasized the importance of displacing ideology and emphasizing epidemiology. Because, you know, if you're a scientist, you should speak the language of science and, and then it's inclusive. Also talked about the importance of not just emphasizing lifestyle in medicine, but lifestyle as medicine and brought in discussion okay. of things like the blue zones. The places around the world where lifestyle is most effectively therapeutic, it's not in the hands of clinicians. You know, the Blue Zonians, described for us by Dan Butner, five populations around the world where people most routinely live to be 100 or more and don't get chronic disease. They're not saying, my doctor's terrific. They don't have a doctor. They don't go to the doctor, right? They, 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 doctor. They're, they're, they get feet, forks, and fingers, right? And along with feet, forks, and fingers. So, you know, they, they tend not to smoke. They're physically active every day because it's normal in their culture. 
They eat real food, not too much, mostly plants per Michael Pond because it's just normal. Strong sense of community. They get enough sleep. They're not stressed out. So feed, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. They fire on all six cylinders. They live to be 100. They don't get chronic disease, and they die peacefully in their sleep in the fullness of time. It is a consummation devoutly to be wished. Those are the blessings of the Blue Zones. So I, you know, I, when I was president, I said, we have to be agents of societal change. This is not just about rarefied models of clinical practice. This is about making it easier for everybody to adopt a health-promoting lifestyle. Not those rare times they come to the doctor, but all the time and every place they live and love and learn and play and pray and spend the bulk of their lives. So those were some of the, the things that I, I focused on during my presidency. And the college started taking off then. I like to think I had something to do with it. Maybe I just was in the right place at the oh, yeah. right time. Susan Benegas, who came on at the time as executive director, is a force of nature, has done a marvelous job. Uh, so, you know, again, wh whether I was a catalyst or I just, you know, was there being there, <laughs> um, it's, you know, back then we had a few hundred members. College now has 10,000 members. So 10,000. I, I was going to yeah. ask you, because I, I know yeah. even, even in my homeland of South Africa, um, we've had we've had a few doctors approach me going, what do you think, you know, and they've done the program and they've just, it's been incredibly powerful for them. It, yeah, it, it, and, it, and, it and it has spawned, yep, yep, yeah. and it spawned sister organizations all around the world. That's right. So it, it's a global movement. One of the things that I did during my tenure was I, I was reflecting, and this will be a theme before we're done, and it's why I do what I do now. Uh, I My residency director at Yale, Jim Jekyll, introduced me very early to a quote by Gertrude Stein. Uh, Jim was a very pragmatic guy and said, Gertrude Stein famously told us a difference, to be a difference, must make a difference. And that just stuck with me. I, I, I was never able again. to let that I need, I need to write that down. It's a good one. A difference to be a difference must make a difference. And that's because, you know, fun. very, yeah, very often we give ourselves credit for the things we try to do. We give ourselves credit for going through the motions. But, you know, it's not as if the ends always justify the means, but there, there have to be ends. Otherwise, yeah. what are the means all about? It's, you know, it's, it's just a lot of noise and motion. So, okay, wait, you know, wait, we're going to have one of those moments where I interject now. Okay. Two things I want. So two things I just want to connect with because I want to move on to your next initiative, which is really exciting. Is one is my main motto for three X four genetics is health is a daily choice, and I always say that. And and and, and when I came out of dietetics, um, and incidentally, the person who dragged me out of dietetics and gave me um, a different way of seeing nutrition was actually Marco Polin. So the irony of a six year degree is I actually learned my nutrition from Michael Polin and, and that the quote you gave was, was actually my founding quote from Michael Polin. So that's yeah. a great irony, right? Many years at university and I was reading Michael Polin's books and he was giving me answers. But um, the, the thing about healthy choice is one of the issues I had, and I'm sure you can relate to this, is, is when people think of health, because of the way kind of dietetics was set up as a profession, it was like macronutrient distribution, how much carbohydrate, how much protein. Um, and if I kind of get it right on average, then I've kind of got it right. And I try to change the, the conversation to every minute of every day, we get to make choices. And every single choice we make, every minute of every day makes a difference and matters so that we can change our destiny if the next minute and the next minute. Because I think people thought of health as this kind of 
broad kind of thing, not this extraordinary ability to literally change our health destiny in the next minute that we make a choice. And that choice is to your point, feet, fork, and fingers. Got it. So anyway, just wanted to kind of tie that in because absolutely. So completely agree. Um, right. Oh, thank you. Um, so so, oh, so a few things. Yeah. All right. Well, a few things. So first of all, uh, shout out to any dietitians listening. And I'm a big fan. I, I've worked closely with dietitians across the whole expanse of my career. I, I agree with you, Yael, that there is a danger in the reductionism yes. and that dietetics can draw you down that rabbit hole into a place where everything is about nutrients and you can miss the forest for the trees because ultimately you get the foods right, the nutrients take care of themselves. And I think that's what people really need to be emphasizing. On the other hand, a tremendous skill set among dietitians, um, critical colleagues of mine in everything I've ever done, my clinical research, my patient care, and now running my own business, Diet ID. So, so shout out there and a shout out to Michael uh, yeah. Holland. Do, I mean, do, I kind do, of you know agree. Michael? Uh, yeah, it's okay. Do, do you know Michael? <laughs> I don't, but if you'd introduce so me, I, I'd be I, like, I do. absolutely yeah, delighted. Well, well, he's a rock star, uh, but really nice guy. And of course, yeah. uh, polymath, because, you know, he, he wrote about nutrition because it was important, but he's not trained in nutrition. He's a journalist. As he's a writer. Yeah, and as I, and as yeah. I'm sure you know, you know, he's gone off in another direction. He yeah. spent the last several years, ex you know, experimenting with mind-altering drugs. A, a couple uh, of people have gone that way. We've lost <laughs> a couple of people who turned left. But, uh, yeah. so, sorry, David, I do want to say, um, I've, I've been giving a bit of a, you know, conversation on dietetics. I am a dietitian. I do think there are challenges. And in fact, one of the greatest papers I ever read was... Um, was called a nutrition nutritionist and it was this reductionist idea behind nutrition by what is it Giorni Skrinis he's actually Eastern European but he lives in Australia and he wrote this paper about why the greatest challenge of nutrition was reductionism right. and that we were right. so focused on the nutrients that we were missing actually nutrition per se right I, and, I, and, and for I, me, that I, was pivotal for I me. agree I agree. So I, I've addressed the same topic, probably less articulately, but from a simpler perspective, yeah. I've said every wild animal species on the planet knows what to eat. They don't run randomized clinical trials. They, they don't do biochemical analyses. They just are adapted to a certain pattern of foods. And if they get that pattern right and honor their native adaptations, everything falls yeah. into place. You know, if anything, it's homo sapien arrogance to think that we're the one exception to that rule of evolutionary biology. So a good place to start is just get the basic pattern of foods right as they were in a natural world where we ate what we could find. And so I, I, I completely agree with all of that. Uh, so back to Gertrude Stein, one of the critical elements in my career path was wanting to make a difference in the specific goal was to add years to lives, add life to years. And then for the latter, for the most recent 10 to 15 years, I've appended and, oh, by the way, save the planet because we have some hope of being healthy, vital people on a healthy, vital planet, or we have no hope of being healthy, vital people. So I, I've, you know, everything I've done has been in the service of how do we take what we know and turn it into what we do so people can live long, prosper with vitality, go gentle into that good night in the fullness of time and have a healthy, vital planet to sustain us. So while I was president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, I was looking for a way to extend what being president meant, because I knew I, I was president-elect and then I was president and I was going to be past president and everybody forget all about me. 
How do I make this matter? How do I make it make a difference? So I founded a nonprofit organization called the True Health Initiative. We sort of had a kickoff event in Boston in 2015 when an organization called Old Ways sponsored a common ground meeting. Uh, Walter Willett, uh, former chair of nutrition at Harvard, and I co-chaired yeah. it. And, and this is to the audience, this is important. Any of you who care about nutrition, if you're unfamiliar with Old Ways Common Ground Conference, Google Old Ways Common Ground. It's it's real it's one of the greatest conferences in my career. Wow. What what we did was we we accepted the fact that from the public's perspective, no two nutritionists agreed about anything. So we said, we don't think that's true. Um, let's pull together groups we know are waging blatant war with one another, the, the paleo experts and the vegan experts and the Mediterranean experts and everybody else, people who advocate for dairy and people who say we should never eat dairy. And let's invite them all to make their presentations. And then let's have behind the scenes meetings in between those public presentations to talk about what do we have in common and see if we can map out an expansive common ground. And we did, and we wound up agreeing that we agreed about 80% of everything. There was disagreement, but it, it was the residual space after we accounted for the agreement. And what we also agreed was that when you're handed a microphone, you never talk about the 80%. You never say, I mostly agree with all my colleagues. Thank you for having me, yeah, because then they never invite you back. It's, yeah. it's boring. It's, you know, it's not provocative. No, when you're invited to comment as an expert, you need to say what makes you special and different. So everybody does. So it sounds like we disagree about everything. We don't. So old ways, common ground. And you'll hear presentations by vegan champions, people you know, by the way, really famous people, and paleo champions but all coming together to say we mostly agree and we actually published a consensus statement. And then the True Health Initiative, my nonprofit, was put together to say we should turn this conference into a crusade and, and work forever to help the world understand that there's massive consensus around the fundamentals of eating well, which by the way, Michael Pollan nailed in seven words, eat food, not too much, mostly most plants. Most plants, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, I, you know, I've, I've devoted a lot of my years of effort to that very topic. I've written review articles requested by journals on the topic of, you know, can we say what diet is best? I wrote, my, my magnum opus is a book called The Truth About Food. It's a 200,000 word, 800 page book. That's, that's sort of a brain dump. I, I've led the, the, I've either authored solo or edited four editions of a nutrition textbook for health professionals, nutrition and clinical practice. So I've been, you know, I've been mired in this my whole career. And it is that simple. You get the, if, if you eat wholesome foods, mostly plants in a balanced assembly, it's vegetables, nice. fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds. And if you mostly drink water when you're thirsty, boom, you're done. You can't go too far Soft wrong. Book. Whereas, you, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that in the truth about food, again, it's this massive book, which you could use to hold open a door in a stiff wind. I, I joke about, and I have copies here. I, I would lift it if my arms were strong enough. Um, I joke that, you know, a, this is a massive book that should be seven words long and they wouldn't even be my words. I'd be plagiarizing the whole damn thing. Be Michael be Michael words. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's true. So the, my whole the, career the, started with yeah, seven, yeah. With no, it's seven great. words. Uh, he, see, he, I mean, he's, he's a great writer and, and he just expresses things beautifully. So, and that's, I mean, arguably that was, that was his crowning achievement. Eat food, not too much, most of us. It just so nails it. But I said, you know, what justifies the other 199,993 words? It's 
why is it so damn hard to accept this simple truth? What's in the way? So really uh, most of the truth about food is all the lies about food and all the entities uh, that profit from the lies about food. And so uh, I explain away, you know, everything, who's profiting from the status quo? Why is this so hard? Why can't we seem to accept this simple fundamental truth? That's why it's a long book. There was a lot to oh, say. I, I love that. I, I Well, I, I can't get it. I can't get such a big book, but I, I do, I do love that idea. But it's available on Kindle. You don't, you don't have to get the, the, the I actual book. don't even know if Kindle can go with that. But Dave, I have to say, and, and you will forgive me for making, that usually I try to make this podcast shorter. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Today I'm not, because I have so much to talk to you about. So I challenge you back, because I did not know about the Old Ways Common Ground Conference. What year was that? 2015. Okay, so I'm going to challenge you back. Do you know about the Giessen Declaration of 2005? Giessen. Tell me more. I'm not sure. It's a similar story. And it took me, I was like 25 years into my career when I discovered it. And I was doing actually a master's in, in food, um, social, uh, food systems and, and um, sociology because I realized I'd only studied biological sciences. And that only accounted for about 20% of why people were eating what they were eating. And I figured I'd better go and understand all the other forces at play. And um, while I was doing this, I discovered the Giessen Declaration. What happened is in 2005, an extraordinary group of nutritionists, health, um, um, public health professionals, not a single dietitian, Marion Nestle was there um, from all over the world, gathered in Giessen, which I believe is in Germany, I think Germany or Australia, mm -hmm. anyway. And they had this conference and each of them spoke about a different aspect of nutrition and it dealt with all the questions of of what is what does good nutrition look like for the future and uh, and they called it the new nutrition policy and um they looked at it from a nutrition point of view but they looked at it socio-demographic kind of every environmental nutrition and this was in 2005 mm -hmm. and they produced something called the Giessen declaration which was really a consensus statement that you mentioned and they published a whole lot of papers in the Journal of Public Health in 2005. And they came up with a recommendation for what the future of nutrition looked look like. And they called it wholesome nutrition. And I got through two dietetic degrees and a couple of other things and never once never, never about came this. Up. Never. Mm. And if you look at the, the author's names, they are all extraordinary in their own right. They Okay. The fact that they never had a single dietitian, there was a fundamental critical flaw because we were the ones that had to take the message and bring it to the world. Right. And, maybe, and, and so here's the interesting thing, and we can talk about this another time. I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but when I discovered the Giesen Declaration, I was so excited, but I was also devastated that 20 years had passed, well, not 20 years, you know, 15 years had passed, and this was the first I'd heard about it someone who cares so deeply about nutrition, why weren't we having this conversation in 2005? So I wrote to every single member and I said, I want to do a master's thesis on this and I want to bring this work out into the open because everything you've done is magnificent. And when you have a look at it, I'll send you all the papers. It is truly beautiful work and not one person wrote back to me. And I think well, two people wrote back and said, I can't talk about it and no one else wrote back to me. It's like, and it's the same. You're now telling me about this amazing Old Ways Common Ground Conference. And I did sign up for the True Health Initiative. So I was one of your devotees. Um, and I didn't know about this. So um, 
this is something we need we need to do better yeah and and you know the fault may lie with those of us who are trying to promulgate the messages the fault may lie with the noisy world we live in and it's just impossible to keep up with everything because we're barraged all the time. I think I've heard of the Gieson Declaration. I, I, Marion's a friend and I've read her books. And I think she may reference it, but I, I didn't know it well and I certainly had forgotten about it. It doesn't surprise me. Voltaire famously told us there's nothing new under the sun, right? So human ingenuity keeps leading us back to solutions to problems that haven't gone away. It doesn't mean the solutions didn't exist before. It just means we haven't used them. Um, so yeah, it's it, not surprising that, that every good answer has a heritage a similarly good answer that that maybe was left to language, but ultimately finds new expression in its progeny. So, I, you know, I think I think there's just a lineage there and that's all great. And I think that's where you're, um, that's where I think you're so extraordinary is the ability to take this information and bring it to the world. You know, we need a few of you because I think translation is everything. And, you know, we can have these conferences, we can read these articles, but if we don't way, have a way of bringing it to the world, and I think, through the college, through your writing, through your, you know, this kind of what I began with, with Poet Laureate of Health Promotion kind of thing, is then we have so little if we can't bring this to the world. And I think this has really been your your thing, you know, your, your absolute talent. I, I, I've certainly tried, but see, I would hold myself accountable with Gertrude Stein's quote echoing in my head, a difference to be a difference must make a difference. I, 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 wanna, I wanna confess to, to those listening in. So, you know, as a young person motivated with great passion and some level of ability, I thought, okay, I'm gonna play a role in bending the curve. There's gonna be less obesity, there's gonna be less chronic disease. People are gonna live longer and better and the world will be healthier. So it's 35 years, you know, since I made that declaration to myself, we have more obesity, not less. We have more chronic disease, not less at every younger age. We have more premature death, not less. And the planet's going to hell in a handbasket. So uh, <laughs> what would we score this effort? Uh, D minus at best, uh, if not an F. No, so, but you get an A for effort. A for effort. A for it's not good enough. Yeah. So one of the things that that differentiates me, I think, is that I, I've been brutally honest with myself about exactly that every step of the way. And I, you know, I, I sometimes, again, this is sort of me talking to me, joking, you know, kind of looks like you can't hold a job because I've done so many different things. I, I was an on-air contributor for ABC News Good Morning America. I've been a residency director. I was a lab director. I did patient care for many years. I did primary care. Then I did integrative medicine. And all of a sudden, you know, my ripe old age, I, I'm an entrepreneur who founded a company and, and is running it. But the motivation has always been the same. Seek a way to make a difference. And if what you're doing isn't making a difference, move on to something that can. And I'm an entrepreneur because I wanted to found a business, but because I'm looking for ways to scale solutions, I think can make a difference. And, and you know, to, to borrow from another poet, we have miles to go before we sleep uh, and oh, we yes. do indeed have promises to keep. So all those promises that, you know, I, I pledged in the early going of my career, they're as yet unfulfilled. Uh, so we have to keep seeking solutions. And one of the great challenges is the din, constant noise, misinformation, disinformation. It's harder than ever to elevate signal Absolutely. above noise. The True Health Initiative is all about that by amplifying the signal by pooling voices, diverse dissenting voices, bringing them together and saying, actually, we agree. 
and and elevating that. But it's you know again, it, it's just really really hard to do. So I keep trying. I hear you. I, I in I, in two thousand and nineteen, I th I think I gave my most important presentation I've ever given. Haven't been invited back to that conference. I clearly didn't go down so well. <laughs> but essentially, what I I stood up and said is um, I was. 19 years in the world in the world of working in nutrigenomics 19 years and I stood up on a stage and said we failed and part of that failure is me I've I've been working in this field for 19 years now it's 23 years but it was 19 years at the time and the industry's failed we failed and I've been working in this industry so I failed and here's why we failed and it was a real like facing you know it was a real like moment for me of do I step in or do I step away like it was so upsetting to me to real when I look back on my career and also look back on the industry I actually think not only did we fail it was an abomination I mean the genetic testing industry had gone absolutely pear-shaped and as someone who had been there in the beginning I kind of saw like I had been part of that failure rather than its success and I had to make a very tough decision of like, let's go back to architecture and do something else, go swim or something. Or do I step in and try find solutions? And hence the entrepreneurial story, right? The same as you. It's like, it's not yeah. like, oh, I really need to, you know, start a company and be a startup and look for funding and not sleep for the next five years. Like it was right. because it was either I give up and I walk away from what I saw was partly my failure and associated with the industry or do I step in and try to find solutions so I think I think I totally understand what what you're saying and that's where entrepreneurship kind of comes from and so yeah I, I I guess so I you know I think it can come from other places I mean a lot of successful entrepreneurs are 20 somethings 30 something <laughs> that's just kids who you know sort of cook it up in their garage make a billion dollars and say hey what's the next thing but then there are others of us who've just been you know working for decades to try and be the difference we hope to see in the world. And it's just really, really hard to achieve, which, which is, by the way, it's always a fraught topic for me because you know, I, I'm, I'm becoming an elder statesman of the field now and they trot me out to, to inspire the young people. And the last thing I wanna do is discourage the young people and say, okay, well, all right, guys, here's, here's the cold hard truth. I've been at this for 35 years and it's a colossal failure, have a nice day. I mean, that's not a truly inspiring message. No. So, so, you know, I think there are a few elements. First, I think it is important to be honest with ourselves. And if we're not achieving the difference we hope to make, we should not be patting ourselves on the back for the effort. It's not enough. I mean, the, the, the goal really, the objectives do matter. And I think we have to be adaptable. Uh, I don't think, you know, we should bop from, from item to item, but I do think if, if we're trying a particular way of being the difference we hope to see and it's not effective, we should start asking, is there another way? Is That's there a better amazing. way? Uh, so, you know, essentially what happened was uh, fairly late in my career in the grand scheme of things, uh, 2016, I had been wrestling for some time with the frustration that we tend to manage what we measure. And diet quality had evolved over the past 30 years from a leading cause of premature death to the leading cause of premature death and chronic disease. It's the number one leading predictor of premature death and chronic disease in the United States today, diet quality. But we measure it in almost no one. And that's not the whole reason why we fail to manage it, but it's a big part of the problem. Imagine if we all knew how important blood pressure was, but nobody had invented the measure. blood pressure cuff. Yeah. Right. Nobody measured. So we all agreed. Yeah. Strokes, heart attacks is terrible, but we don't know what anybody's blood pressure is. And we don't know how to compare what it is to what it ought to be. So nobody does anything about it. 
I mean, that would be absurd, but that's the way the world was before the blood pressure cuff changed it. They said, well, we, we need a blood pressure cuff for diet. Everybody should know their diet quality. Diet quality measured objectively should be in front of every health professional as a cue to action, if only we could. And that was a grain of sand and I was the oyster and it just kept irritating me. And the pearl that ultimately popped out was diet quality photo navigation, the first fundamentally new approach to dietary assessment in about 50 years, which oh, we have ever. since patented. Ever. <laughs> well, it's been in a long time. It's incredibly yeah. simple, by the way. Um, we, uh, for those who don't know anything about it, you can learn more at dietid.com. That's the website for my company. But you know, essentially, all methods of assessing diet that don't involve sequestering you on a metabolic ward involve you remembering everything you ate for some period of time, either yesterday or three months or six months, or writing it down as you eat it for the next seven days. All extremely tedious and all, all one food Ooh. at a time. Yeah. But if you think about what you're after there, what you really care about is, okay, if you can remember one food at a time, everything you ate over the past six months, what we're trying to do is assemble a representation of your overall diet. That's what we care about. What is your dietary pattern? What is the distribution of foods? What are the, what's the distribution of nutrients? And what's your overall diet quality? Because an objective measure of diet quality, like the Healthy Eating Index, tells us your risk of premature death and chronic disease. That's what we want to know. That's that is to diet what the blood pressure measurements are to the critical importance of blood pressure. So we reverse engineered it. We said, well, how about we don't ask people to remember one food at a time to get to their overall dietary pattern. Let's start with overall dietary pattern. Let's create a map. Diet type on the x-axis, everything that people in the real world actually eat from paleo and keto to vegan in, in various versions and everything in between Mediterranean, pescatarian, flexitarian, typical American, ethnic diets, Mexican-American, Caribbean-American, Asian-American, South Asian-American, Chinese, all that, you know, for a given population, a given part of the world, all the kinds of diets they actually eat, x-axis and y-axis, 10 tiers of quality using an objective measure, the Healthy Eating Index 2015. So every cell in the map is a specific kind of diet at a specific tier of quality. And then let's turn that into a picture. Let's create a multi-day meal plan. Dietitians did this. Um, let's turn the meal plan into an inventory of foods and dishes. Let's create high definition photographs of all that. And let's have a standardized way of putting that together into a collective image that represents that unique cell on the map. And then let's build an app that presents you, drops you into the right part of the map. Because if you're vegan, we don't want to show you meat. And if you're carnivore, we don't want to show you the vegan diet, but drop you into the right part of the map show you two images of diets that could be your diet and say, which of these looks more like stuff you eat A or B? And then when you pick B, we say, how about now and show you two more and play that game until we've got you to the cell in the map that is the closest possible fit. Well, this is what we do yes. with Diet ID. We do a conference. Nutrition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's actually fun. And it takes it fun. about 60, 60 seconds. We can do a comp. So in 60 seconds, we can report back to you your diet type operationally defined your diet quality objectively measured, your intake of all the different foods in servings per day, and your approximate intake of over 200 nutrients in grams, milligrams, and micrograms. And so of we, course, we get all you that. can now measure change. So, I mean, and, and we can measure change over can, time, right. Now we can measure. So I have to tell you about my experience of diet ID. So I have been of the, the opinion that I have never seen diet assessment work in my 35 years as a dietitian. It has been fundamentally flawed from the beginning, food diaries, 24 recall, nothing works. So my team come to me and say, 
So we've never even, I'm not even interested in trying, like it's not going to happen anyway. My team come to me and say like, there's this amazing product. I think you should have a look at it. I was like, what's a dietary assessment? No, there's no dietary assessment that works. No, no, you really should look at it. Um, Dr. David Katz, it's Dr. David Katz's company. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, if Dr. David Katz has got a company doing dietary assessment, I'll have a look. And I was sent the, the demo and I, I, I went through the demo. And so, so, two, so two comments. First of all, I have never seen dietary assessment work up until now. I think it's absolutely genius, absolutely genius. And the second thing was, I mean, the, the, the kind of scientific rigor and idea behind it is brilliant, but something that I don't experience generally in healthcare and is kind of a big drive of through for genetics is user experience. That generally when I'm given a good product, the user experience is very poor. And there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that in, in building out Diet ID, you spend a great deal of time and effort and use great expertise in trying to figure out what was the user experience so that I enjoyed the experience. And dietary assessment I've, has never been on the top of my list of fun. I enjoyed, the, I was engaged by the imagery. It was super quick and, and I found it to be amazing and accurate. So I just, I wanna congratulate, I think you have solved one of the greatest challenges of nutrition that I never thought in my time I would ever see solved. And I wasn't the only one on my team who was super excited, but it was definitely the first time that, that I've seen one of the hardest thing. And, and, and the interesting thing is when I started 3 x for genetics and I'd been through, I've been a failure, the industry's a failure, how am I going to fix it? The first thing I did was I formed a partnership with a gamification company. Because I realized as a scientist, I was absolutely useless at trying to figure out a product answer. So I went to them and said, I've been building genetic tests for 15 years, but I don't know how to build a genetic test that anyone will care. And they were a, a behavioral gamification company, same like you. How do we use imagery, color, um, and engagement to get people to change behavior or to, and, and that's how I founded 3 x Genetics of, um, in, a, in a gamification company, because I, I just realized how much I didn't have to bring. And yeah, so well, it, it, it takes, it takes a village. Well, so first of all, yeah, you know, thank you so much. I, that, that's extremely gratifying feedback. I, I actually did something like this once before I, I developed something called the Anki, the overall nutritional quality index algorithm, which was a nutritional profiling system to score overall nutritional quality of individual products on a supermarket shelf. And it's the best nutrient profiling system ever devised. It was a little too good, so the food industry had to kill it. But when I, when I developed that or led the team that developed that, I was the scientist, but I didn't have control over the business. And the business, I think, ran a very misguided course and ultimately failed. Although at our heyday, we were deployed into 2,000 supermarkets nationwide, one to 100. The higher the number, the more nutritious the food. We scored 150,000 foods matched to UPC. It was very cool. Anyway, when I had my next epiphany all these years later for Diet 80, I said, okay, this time I've got to be in charge of everything because this thing really deserves to thrive. So um, it, it is a great passion. It was, it's been a huge problem, and I really appreciate the, the kind feedback. But I also want to shout out to my team. So I, I acquired a company called Foodstand that was founded by my, my partner and uh, operations chief at Diet 80, Rachna Govani. And, and unlike me, Rajna knows UX. She, she had been running a SaaS yeah. company, a digital health company before. She, she knew about appification. She knew about API. She knew about the importance of getting the UX user interface right. So everything that's good there, 
it is to Rochna's credit and my amazing team, which of course has been growing over the years. But thank you. Yeah, I mean, I it, it's I you know interesting just to bring us full circle, and and you know folks listening in can decide if they they buy this or not. But this is metaphor, right? So essentially, when you're trying to fix a problem, looking at it and seeing a different problem and a solution to the other problem, saying, hey, why not? So a good example for how we fix the dietary assessment problem, you, you and I are both wearing glasses, which means you and I have both been to an eye doctor, which means you and I have both had that eye test where you look at two images at a time and answer the question, which is in focus, A or B? And when you say B, they say, how about now? A, how about now? A, Same how about process. now? B. Right, and you play that game until you have an exact match for your eyes and doctors. Well, that device is called a peroptor. It involves incredible physics and optics. It's a very complicated engineered device, but the, the user experience is unbelievably simple. Your only job is which of these two images is more in focus. And you play that game until you get the right answer. So when I was thinking about dietary assessment, I actually thought of that. I thought, imagine if they asked you to try to remember how you think you see at different times of day, at different kinds of light and fill out a 50 page questionnaire. Nobody would ever get their eyes corrected. They make it really, they do the heavy lifting, building the foropter, so you don't have to. Why can't we do that? Let's cut out all this bad misremembering one food at a time and say, here are the diets a person in the real world could have. Which of them looks like you? It's that simple. So metaphor, seeing one problem in the guise of another that's already been solved and saying we could adapt that solution to this problem too. And then we had a patented solution. We've published a number of papers. Other researchers have studied diet ID and published papers. So for, for the scientists listening in, this has been validated against food frequency questionnaire 24-hour recall, which admittedly is not great because they're not so great, but more importantly, against biomarkers of nutrient intake, biomarkers of cardiometabolic health. So it, it really works. Well, so what, so, okay, we, we, I mean, this has been definitely the longest. I'm going to have to start ending it off. But okay, so I'm going to ask one last question. And then I look forward to like in a year's time, having another call with you and seeing what other problem in the industry you've managed to, <laughs> to solve. Because you solved this one. So I'm going to tick it off my list now. But so, David, let's let's finish off. I mean, I'm sure everyone is as blown away as I am by sitting and listening to you and knows that we could talk for hours. But looking, what would be the piece of advice that you would give to someone who's starting out who is, you know, practitioner or about, you know, a health journalist or someone who really cares about about better health, better planet. What would be the advice and the wise words that you would leave with them? Well, I, I hope they're wise. Uh, I, I have I've railed against the failure to see the forest through the trees and and to sort of ignore what hides in plain sight. Look at how we had uh, all kinds of turmoil to respond to the COVID pandemic because it was acute and it was new and it was exotic and we were afraid, we've had a pandemic all along that claims more lives than that every year. And that's the chronic disease pandemic. And familiarity has bred, if not contempt, at least complacency. Look for what hides in plain sight. Take stock of, of what's broken. View it from altitude and ask, where is there an opportunity to make a difference? Is it advocacy? Is it engineering? Is it architecture? Is it, you know, perceiving a solution that others haven't? And, and apply your native skills. I think the other thing that's really important is that all of us must play to our own passions because we have the greatest capability of making a difference. 
when we channel our greatest energy and our greatest energy feeds itself. It's our passions. It's the ways we want to make a difference. So if you can align what you're good at doing and what makes you passionate with a problem you see in the world, there's a very good chance you can be the solution. On to better than that. Well, Dr. David Katz, thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute delight. I shall be listening to this again. I'm sure there's so much that I, I was like, damn, I should have asked that. No, it's been absolutely wonderful. <laughs> and I look forward to one day meeting you in person because Likewise. it's been wonderful listening to you speak. So I'm sure everyone else will agree with me. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com backslash podcast.